Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Our host today is Joanne Perry, a longtime activist and lifelong pacifist. Welcome. My name is Joanne Perry, and today we are interviewing Ishwari Rachuk a dedicated activist who has recently completed a documentary film named The Invisible War on Blood, which explores cultural concepts and fears in the world of Nepalese women and men. She did it through Northern Monday Films, but has met obstacles that we are going to discuss today, as well as learning in small part the difficulties in the film industry. She's, I'm afraid, about to learn a great deal more about marketing and the filmmaker's quandary. Our podcast explores the ideas, concepts, and interplay of active nonviolence, also known as pacifism, and today we're hoping to delve into the ideas behind pacifism as a politically useful tool and what calls a young person to take up this commitment. Welcome, Ishwari. Thank you, Joanne. Please tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and your interest in nonviolence. I'm from Nepal. I came to the U.S. in August 2013 for my studies. I am eldest of five daughters, and my mom still lives in Nepal. And all the daughters, five of us, live outside Nepal right now. And my dad died when I was 13 years old. It's been a while since he's passed away, and it's been it's a good life for me right now. Did your mother remarry? No, she did not, actually. Growing up. Even now, there is not much of a remarrying concept back in Nepal. Divorce is very rare. Um, and also, uh, remarrying is culturally a kind of tabooed. You've been in the country now for five years, and your sisters, how many of them are in the U.S. also? Just me in the U.S. My other sister, she lives in Canada. She's the closest. Uh, one in Canada, one in Australia, one in Dubai, one in Kyrgyzstan. Yes, all five of us around the world and mom in Nepal. Are they all activists too? Not as much as me, but we do things in our own different ways. I know you just completed the short documentary, The Invisible War on Blood, this past month. Could you tell us what led you to create it? I would say my personal experience with menstruation. I have really bad cramps when I have my period. Uh, I have such bad cramps that I get the pain at least like 10, 12 days before I actually have my period. And on the day that I have my period, I can barely move. So it's very painful for me. And now it's gone a little better. Growing up, it was even more painful. I used to throw up. But the thing was, I could never tell anybody what was wrong with me. I could not go to school, but I could not tell them I could not come to school because I had period pain. Then as I grew up, I started when I used to go to the office, I would miss one day or a month 
generally. And people would say, oh, what happened? And I just had to say, oh, I had stomach pain or I had a headache. Every month I had to think of something new so it was not repetitive and people would believe that it actually happened. So that also gave wrong impression to people that I wasn't working hard enough. Then I wondered, why could I not just say that I had period pain, I have severe cramps, so I can't move? And I've always wondered what the other party, especially men, thought about, you know, why I could not share that with them. And yeah, I come here in the U.S. I thought it was going to be different. And it's not. I see that many things still exist in regards to taboo and how women suffer. We still see that more than 40 states still imply tax on menstruation products in the U.S. So it's a completely different thing than what we from outside the U.S. perceive U.S. to be. That's what led uh, this documentary to be made. The cultural taboos are enormous. Oh, yes. I can believe that in the U.S. we still go through that, especially the perspective of what U.S. is for an outsider from the U.S. I come here, it's totally different than what we think it is. Would you mind just diverting for a few seconds and tell us a couple of your impressions when you came here that were totally different than your, the reality you encountered? I think our listeners would really like to know that. One of the things out of many is the isolation that was prevalent here was just mind-blowing for me. In Nepal, we we have a community system, right? People just drop by to your house. They're always talking to you. They're talking. They drop by to your house to ask for extra sugar or something like that. And I came here and I came out here as a student. I lived with three uh, roommates. Nobody hardly talked to each other. And I would come back and no, no interaction at all. It was very difficult. And I also saw every, all the door, doors were locked at all times. That means the being approachable to another person was hard. Uh, sharing stories, what you were going through was extremely hard. Uh, the other was, was the poverty I saw here in U.S. Even now, people back home, they think, oh, just tell, call Ishuri and ask for some money or somebody else for money, and they think we can just send money. But the poverty here is so scary. Uh, in Nepal, you can beg and you can maybe survive for a while. You know, you go through a hard time, somebody else helps you, and you help them back. But here, you just, you are by yourself. It's, it's just, it's very bad, I feel. Those two things, apart from the food that's wasted, it's just, wow. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. You had mentioned earlier Al, when you were talking about taxation on uh, the pads, the tampons. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that that is not true in Nepal, or do they use different products in Nepal? I grew up using the reusable pads, uh, old clothes. We tear them off and we wash them, reuse them again and again. We do use more pads, and tampon is still not so widely used. But we don't talk about tax as much as we do. And also probably I wasn't as aware of tax as I am right now. So it wasn't such an issue for me then. It is kind of hard to put 7.5% or 8% or 14%, depending on top of whatever budget number you thought you were paying for any product. Yes. And also you, I don't know if you know, Viagra is prescribed drugs. That means you get it for free. 
there are reasons why it's prescribed and it's medical reason, but we don't bleed for medical reasons, do we? Well, I would guess that it's issue of health. I, mean, yes. I will go with Viagra being a prescription drug seems mm -hmm. kind of silly. It should mm -hmm. probably be available over the counter, mm -hmm. therefore taxable. But I don't think that many people will agree with that, especially until it hits generic status. And then things yeah. may change and the profit margin may fix all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have had a difficult time through most of your life since mm -hmm. adolescence, and it was forbidden both in Nepal and in the U.S. to mm -hmm. talk about it. Mm -hmm. And then you were judged because you had to take time off. There mm -hmm. was a, a physical medical reason not to be there, but the assumption was is you were playing somewhere else. Yes. Okay. Well, now that we've talked about what led you to create the documentary, let's hear about what's actually in the Invisible War on Blood. What is in this documentary? I talk about the menstruation huts that's practiced in west part of Nepal. I talk about menstruation all the time, right? I talk about my experience. And then I, we talk about menstruation huts, what it is, why women have to go and live in the huts uh, when they're having period. And I, I share the story and I did not live there because not all parts of Nepal follow the tradition. Then I share the story and people said, oh, poor Nepal or poor developing countries. Most of the time, people have the perception that these, if you want to say bad things, only happen in poor or developing countries. Then I say, do you know about the tax? Just imagine if you are homeless and you're in the U.S., will you be any different than living in a hut? You don't even have a hut. Just imagine the situation of women uh, menstruating in prison system where you actually are humiliated. Is the situation any different from being in a menstruation hut? That's what I show in the documentary. I show the parallel between the experience of women who are living in menstruation huts in Nepal with women who go through hardship in the U.S. So the situation is not just in poor developing countries. The situation of women is similar, the hardship for women or the people who menstruate is similar here in the U.S. too. As part of your documentary, I assume that you went to the menstrual huts, correct? Actually, no. I It's a compilation of uh, other documentaries and pictures and photos, but I interviewed somebody here in the U.S., the huts themselves, people go there for their period, right? Mm -hmm. the, the two to seven days, whatever it is. Yes, five to seven days. It's not dissimilar to many countries around the world where women would isolate themselves. Mm -hmm. But my impression, it wasn't so much a shameful thing. I mean, it may have been viewed that in current times, mm -hmm. but it was a place to go. It's very much like being on the women's balcony in a synagogue. Mm -hmm. You've got a party going, even though you've been isolated. There's a lot going yes. on. Is that true with these menstrual huts? I think what happened with the traditions that especially used to be good for women, they over time became bad for women. Menstruation huts have probably had similar history, I would say. Uh, I went to a conference in 2015 about menstrual health of women. It was in Boston, and there was an activist from India who worked to eradicate menstrual huts in certain parts of India. She said they were successful. They, they got rid of the huts. Then the women came to them 
and said, hey, why did you get rid of the huts? It was our only time when we could rest and we could talk to our friends. And then they said, oh, bring it back. Then they had to lobby again to bring the menstruation huts back. So, yeah, you, I'm, I agree that it might have been for a good thing, you know, women can um, be together and talk about it. And also, I would say it's also a time for you and the old new generation to learn from uh, older generation. But now it's become more of a shame. You are forced into these huts. Uh, you have to go there. And many women and girls, they have been raped. They have been bitten by snakes. They have uh, lost their lives. And also it's up in the mountain. So it's cold. It's very Minnesotan weather there. They try to keep their hearts warm by blocking the only door they might have. That means they have many girls especially have suffocated to death. So something that was started for good for women has happened. Bad thing has happened over time. We cannot decide for these women what is right. If we want to change things, we have to ask them what is right for them. And maybe these huts need to be rebuilt with some safety standards. Yes, you know, livable huts. It can be a good thing for women, I would say. When I have my period and I have a good, livable, nice hut, I would go and stay for a day because I can barely move out of my bed anyway. Yeah, I can see real value in it, but I can also see the corollary mm -hmm. of all these churches separating out the women from men. And I know very well where it came mm -hmm. from. I don't have to do too much research. It yes. is, let's distance ourselves from these mm -hmm. people. They mm -hmm. might not be, quote, unquote, clean. They may, yes. may smell differently during mm -hmm. this couple of weeks. They may not be adequate to our mm -hmm. particular needs, so they should go mm -hmm. sit somewhere else. Yes, it's a violence, the idea of... The pacifism, the subtleness of violence, how we perpetuate violence on other people, especially people who menstruate women in different way. No, you would not even think, like I say, menstruation is not an issue that you would, or even I thought it was something that you could relate it with violence. It is just something that happens to us. But it is bad if you lose life, if somebody thinks bad about me just because I had to take a day off every month. Uh, it, I was, then I lose um, the credibility at work because of my menstruation cramps. Then it becomes a different way of imposing balance or perpetuating balance on other person. Yeah, I would guess that your studies then get interrupted. You're no longer eligible for seniority. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You can't get promoted because you are obviously messing around with yes. the work schedule. I can see the violence without much. It's not real subtle. I'll just be honest. Mm -hmm. It's not subtle at all. Somebody once even told me, a male colleague told me, oh, we can't depend on you because you're gone. You know, sometimes I've had my period on the weekend. <laughs> it is terribly unfair, and mm -hmm. I'm sorry you had to live with it. That's why I made the documentary about people. So I say to people, please start talking about it, sharing stories. Tell your partner, tell your parents how bad, if you suffer through it. Your brothers, your sisters, encourage them to talk about it. Tell them what's right, what's wrong, what's the violence when you, you talk about it or not talk about it. You know, things like that. It, sometimes we don't talk about it because it's, it's uncomfortable, and it is. It is uncomfortable to talk about it, but... It's uncomfortable to live with it. It's a painful process. It is. But unless we share our stories, then nobody will know what we go through. 
I'm going to point out the obvious that maybe you or our listeners haven't thought about, but fully one quarter of a woman's life for 40 years is spent menstruating. Mm -hmm. That is an enormous amount of time to be seen as other, Mm -hmm. not adequate, less than. Mm -hmm. And it's very specific, not just in Nepal, but in Mm -hmm. the U.S. and actually wherever I have traveled. Yes, even when girls go to school, once they start menstruating in many countries, they stop going to schools because they the same thing. They smell different. They're scared all the time just in case they bleed all over. Uh, so many different things. And it's one of the reasons why girls have stopped going to schools. I am so grateful that you have done this film. Uh, me too. This is a podcast on active nonviolence, and it seems to me this is an action in response to one of our basic tenets, that of speaking truth to power. Tell us what you learned about yourself and your place in the world doing this work. I learned that I don't stop, and it's good that I do not stop talking about menstruation, talking about blood, talking about vaginas. It's, it's a hard, uncomfortable thing. People are not comfortable being around you speaking about those and even when I started um, talking about the idea for my documentary it was among the group of men as usual and I could feel that you know the tension and the thing that people wanted me to stop and not say menstruation and blood and this and that but I know it was so uncomfortable for me too because I can I could feel the vibe in the room But in my head, I was telling myself, Ishuri, don't stop, don't stop. I kept going. I've learned that it's uh, difficult, but I don't stop. You mentioned when we were not recording there for a moment, you were attended and there was a speaker at a conference where a number of the women were older. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. I showed uh, the documentary at Women's Club in Minneapolis. And most of the women there, the participants for the program, they have they don't have their period in menstruation anymore. And they said, oh, we're so glad that we don't have our period anymore. But I told them I heard something else starts with that. <laughs> I don't know what, but we'll get there too. When you get there, you'll get there. Yes. <laughs> I also heard you saying that they were angry too. Oh, yes. It's difficult for us to understand why the woman don't stop going to the hut. Why can't we just say, hey, I'm not going there anymore. But imagine if somebody else believes that if you don't go to the hut, then the person will die. How violent will that person be to you if you're going to kill that person just not by going to the hut? So It's very hard. And also, I know how hard it is to stand out. And all these things, the cultural taboos, the the very hard beliefs and the length that people go to to continue these just for their safety. That And it, we don't know, right, if it happens or not. But do we just believe and we don't want to know. Anything you'd like to share about the challenges, Shwari? Yes. The making of the documentary was very interesting. Like I said, sharing the idea of the documentary with my group was uh, uncomfortable, but people got used to it. I kept talking about it over and over and over again every time we met. So that they were like, oh, Isha is going to talk about menstruation. Then the whole making of the thing, we got it ready. And I thought it would take 
it would be completely last August. So I would tell people, hey, it's going to be ready in August. Maybe I should come to your place in September. Then it wasn't ready in September. <laughs> I said, maybe in October I can come over, have a screening. Then I stopped saying dates. I said, oh, it will be ready soon. Then finally in 2018, it, it's ready. So it took a long time, maybe even six more months than I had anticipated. Now it's complete. I have a product. I don't know how to market it. I did have a screening at the women's club in Minneapolis. I have entered it in Twin Cities Film Festival. That's going to be in fall here. Now, otherwise, uh, I have not been able to market it properly. Uh, and so if anybody has any idea, uh, then please contact me. That's one. Also, I would like uh, like to have screening at different places, like in coffee shops. And especially, I would like this to be a means of talking about positive masculinity, how men can be part of the solution then rather than being part of, I wouldn't say the problem, but, you know, being part of being silenced or silent. Have a talk about it, uh, you know, know why it's important. Well, we have babies in this world because women menstruate. It's as simple as that. You were born because your mom menstruated. If your mom did not, then obviously you wouldn't be here. It's as simple as that. But the thing is, it just gets complicated, just like the menstruation hearts. It happened for a good reason. Over time, it became bad for women. And I want this documentary to be a means, a medium of talking about things like this that maybe we would never have talked about. People can reply to you on our blog, which I'm going to encourage everybody listening if they have a venue to view this film. Mm -hmm. I think it is really important work, and I think it's really important that the idea get out there and people become less uncomfortable even with the word menstruation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's vital. But in the interim, if you would like to contact the Friends for a Nonviolent World, the sponsors of this podcast, please feel free to call us at 651-917-0383. We'll be happy to take your calls and forward them to Ishwari. Now that this work is complete, have you noticed anything about audiences or has the Women's Club and their anger been mm -hmm. the, the major audience thus far? Yes. One thing I'll start with is my editor. We worked together, we interviewed people, we were looking through the, the through the documentary for, what, six, eight months. And he told me a very interesting thing. He said that his perspective on women and menstruation had changed just by working on this and me repeatedly telling him, this, sharing this experience. He said he's now more aware how much of that time of the month uh, jokes that especially men make without even thinking how bad it is for people who menstruate. He said he's more empathetic to his partner and he, he's more open. He tells his people that his friends not to make jokes about this. So that's one big first change that I saw in, in a person, on a man. The second thing was I had a sneak preview at North Dakota Film Festival, Human Rights Film Festival in November. And during a panel there, one of the panelists, a man, spoke about it. He said he was very sad to see the similar similarities between, between homeless women here or homeless people who menstruate 
and women in Nepal who go to menstruation hearts. He was he was physically he looked physically sad. That was second experience. And the third experience was um, women uh, being very angry. We had very uh, interactive exchange at the women's club too. And it's been very interesting. And I think um, we need to have more conversation about it. I want to say that when you referred to the time of the month jokes that are still prevalent in the Mm -hmm. male world, I am older than you, obviously, maybe not obviously the audience, of course, (laughs) but I am older than you. And all the years I was in the marketplace and I was in the marketplace for a good 40, 50 years, Mm -hmm. it was a constant hearing of how women couldn't be trusted because of that time in the month, Mm -hmm. that they would be off the charts, that Mm -hmm. they would not be allowed in the boardrooms, whatever the excuse was, Mm -hmm. because of that one quarter of their lives for 40 Mm -hmm. years, they were not to be included. So Mm -hmm. good for you. (laughs) And it's not old stories, right? We see it happen now. We saw that happen in big forum just recently. So yeah, it's not old. It's the work is not done and it's not like old stories. And it's easy to dismiss someone who's older thinking it's an older story. But if it happens in your lifetime, it's pretty current. And Mm -hmm. it always will be. Yes. The mind does not age. It just happened. Yes. And also, I think as I got older, I'm more comfortable talking about my experience. So that's why we think it's older people's issues, because as young people, we're uncomfortable talking about it. Yeah. We think it's something imposed upon us. This Mm -hmm. is terribly unfair. Mm -hmm. It's not right. How dare the world do this to yes. us and, and then have, all the consequences <laughs> and we have i had my period when i was 11 years old so it's not old people right 11 years old is not old and i've been suffering since then you've mentioned some of the effects of change that you've already seen just in three viewings but what other effects are you hoping for what do you hope will change in the world with your film i work with young girls in in one of the schools and when I talk about uh, my documentary and when I talk about um, menstruation, they all giggle, which is so normal. What I want to see happen through the documentary is when I have the screening with the young girls and young boys and men, I want them to be able to share their stories with each other in their families and men be comfortable to ask what's going on. And women be comfortable, or girls especially, comfortable sharing if they have bad pain like I do. Say, hey, this is what's happening. I need to maybe go to the doctor or lie down for a while, something like that. And I want men to be comfortable to know what's going on, why it happens, and it's not just that time of the month. Good, and I hope it does work that Mm -hmm. way. You know, what I did forget to ask you earlier was a little bit about your educational background and the work that you were called to do. Do you have a moment to discuss it? Yes. Um, Here in the U.S., I came in 2013, August, and now I have a master's in gender and women's studies and a nonprofit leadership, so I have two degrees. I graduated in 2016, and my master's thesis surprise, is about menstruation. Well, that's interesting. I wonder where you came up with that topic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And it's uh, titled, She Got Her Period, Men's Knowledge and Perspective on Menstruation. Very good. Mm -hmm. Very good. I interviewed men for that. You're teaching now, right? Yes. Did I hear that correctly? I mentor young girls. Valuable work. (laughs) Um, 
what was your experience with this cultural practice of menstruation and the taboo against it? And how did this impact you personally that you can recognize? I did not have to go to the menstruation hut. It's um, practiced in western part of Nepal. I'm from Kathmandu, which is actually technically Lalitpur, Nepal. Growing up, uh, my mom was very liberal with all of this, but there was many things that we could and could not do. We could not go to the kitchen. We could not serve our own food. We could not take our own drinks. Like if I got home and there was nobody in, in the house, I could not go to the kitchen and get a cup of water for myself or a glass of water or a cup of tea. Or if I was hungry, I could go and make my own food. I'm also not allowed to go to events. Let's say a community, something community events is happening. And I go there and people find out that I'm having my period. You are literally like asked to leave or stay far away, which is almost like shaming you. And it is, it is. We had a um, lot of community meals where people sat on the floor and people are served food, but women who were menstruating have to live far away and they are served food as if they are untouchables. It's shameful. So I went through that. Uh, you were also not to go, not allowed to go to temples, which I went. <laughs> and a lot of those things, and also the use of pads. I used a recyclable pad, so we had to wash it and dry it. And... I would dry wash it when uh, nobody was around. The thing is, we had commun communal uh, fountains. We call them taps. We had so we have to wash our clothes in outside where everybody can see what you're doing. So we, I used to wash my pads late at night. That's already scary being alone at night. Then I would not dry it uh, properly. I would hide it under mattresses. I got infected. I have um, I got UTI uh, for life <laughs> because I was uh, it was something that I tried to hide and it impacted me big time, and it just made uh, my cramps severe because now I have uh, infection um, and all that. So it's all of those has uh, I have been through some of it, but not all of the untouchability part of uh, menstruation. There's two areas I want to explore here real quickly. Mm -hmm. One, I want to mention that this is an experience that you are describing. It's almost identical to my mother's experience. Mm -hmm. My mother was born during the Depression, mm -hmm. the Great Depression, and needing to wash those rags out, hide them from everybody mm -hmm. else, keep everything secret, not letting them dry enough. Mm -hmm. It was a big deal. She mm -hmm. had them at the tail of her bed, and she was scared to death her brother mm -hmm. or father would, or mm -hmm. even her mother would come mm -hmm. in. It was huge. Mm -hmm. So that, that is, uh, I think, that actually impacted my mother. Even to the day she died, she was still horrified mm -hmm. by it. That said, of course, it gets passed on to the next generation, <laughs> mm -hmm. which in this case happens to be me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I also want to talk about this idea of untouchables. Do they have a caste system in Nepal that has an untouchable class, or is it just women during menstruation? We do have a caste system in Nepal. Now, we have uh, four main castes. The bottom two are untouchables. So we do have that untouchable experience going on for the whole two group of castes. But for women, all women, all people who menstruate go through untouchability in Nepal. I hope you make a documentary about untouchables. 
in the near future because I honestly think that the way you speak, you will make a huge difference in the way mm -hmm. we view what people are real and what people are not and where mm -hmm. we should be as human beings in relation to other human beings. It would be fascinating. I am working on it, actually. I'm uh, working on something, uh, de developing a literature for it. And especially when the lower caste or untouchable caste, we don't, we did not have that luxury of going to school, like my parents and my grandparents. I do have that luxury of being an educated person who is in America, who has this all the privilege of writing a book. And I plan to do that. I hope it will materialize soon. What advice? Would you give to others who are experiencing life uh, as a second-class citizen, as someone who is outside of rightness? Mm -hmm. This is really a show about active nonviolence, mm -hmm. this idea that every one of us can make the choice to live a principled life. Mm -hmm. So let's hear about your advice. What would you tell people who are experiencing the situation? I would say your safety matters first. If it's uh, if it's gonna be difficult, if you're if it's going to put your life in risk just because you talk about it, it's okay not to do it. You know, just because you are strong, you don't have to fix the world. But because you, if you're not there, you, you nothing will be there. So be safe, and if you can talk about it, share with others, share with other women, share with other men about the stories and men also stand up when other people are, other men are especially making jokes about the month or saying something bad about women or other people who cannot speak for themselves, you know, stand up, be part of the solutions and say something. And truth be told, it's mostly men who perpetuate violence. Be strong enough to say something and share, talk and be safe. It's always hard to speak truth to power, it is. be safe, mm -hmm. <laughs> and know when to lean in and when to lean out and when to run. Yes. Because those are all options. Yes, yes. Well, I am really proud of you for not running. <laughs> and the last question I have for you, would you do this again and why? <laughs> yes, I would do this again because it's uh, something I'm passionate about. I'm sure I'll continue to have my uh, cramps, which means I will be reminded again and again why I'm here and why it's important and why it's important to give voice to somebody or many people who cannot say, hey, I'm having cramp. Maybe I could not do that 10 years ago. I can do this now and I'll do it again. And I'll do it more actually in the future. Let's hope you get some venues and let's hope a lot of people see your movie. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence, extraordinary people speaking truth to power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw. Dot org, or give us a call at 651-917-0383.